Welcome to the Faith Today podcast, conversations inspired by Canada's Christian magazine. Hey everyone, my name is Karen Stiller. This Faith Today podcast will be a little bit different from what you're used to. Recently, we held the very first ever EFC book club. And I say first because we are going to do more in the fall. But with this first one, we interviewed Beth Severson, who's author of the new book, Not Done Yet, Reaching and Keeping Unchurched Emerging Adults. So what you are about to hear is a very interesting conversation about youth ministry and how our churches can be more welcoming to youth who might be searching between Beth and between Rick Heemstra, who is the EFC's Director of Research. We really hope you enjoy it. It was a rich conversation. After you're done, go to the show notes and you will find a part two, which includes the Q&A from participants who were involved in the book club. Enjoy. Welcome to the EFC Book Club. Uh, my name is Rick Heemstra. I'm your host and moderator this evening, and uh, we have a great evening in store for you. Tonight, we're going to be looking at this book called Not Done Yet, Reaching and Keeping the Unchurched Emerging Adults by Dr. Beth Severson. Dr. Beth Severson is the Associate Professor of Christian Ministries and the Director of the Center for Christian Ministries and Practical Theology at North Park University in Chicago. Previously, she worked as the Director of Evangelism for the Evangelical Covenant Church and as an Associate Pastor at churches near Kansas City and Milwaukee. Dr. Severson, we're so thrilled to have you with us. Welcome to the AFC Book Club. Thank you for having me. So we have a lot to talk about, but just before we get started, could you tell us a little bit more about yourself than what people could glean from my introduction and uh, tell them, well, what do you like to do when you're not teaching, researching, or writing? Sure. Well, the one number one thing I love to do is community. And so um, that looks different from day to day, but um, we have a community home, kind of a guest home where people come and go as they're uh, traveling through, but we also have several young adults, uh, five of them currently who live in community with us. That's great. And that means once a week evening gatherings for uh, dinner or a film and discussion um, to who knows what. Yes. Okay. That's wonderful. So we are talking today about your book and your book uh, deals with uh, the demographic that we sometimes call emerging adults. Now, most of us have read your book, but could you briefly tell us what emerging adulthood is and why it's important? Sure. Uh, the term was uh, coined by a psychologist. And generally, when we talk about emerging adulthood, we're thinking about ages 18 to 29. Some people will bump that up to age 35, even age 39, but thinking of the world of young adulthood and primarily, um, five characteristics that would define that stage of life. One is kind of in-betweenness or transition. I haven't totally settled yet on my occupation, where I'm going to live, or my life partner. So um, I also, number two, I'm exploring my identity. What commitments will I make? Who am I? Uh, what's my vocation? What am I going to do with my life? What, um, who will be my life partner? What's going to be my geographic location? And what groups will I commit to? And because of that, the third characteristic is that during this kind of life phase, young adults can be self-focused because they're learning to stand on their own. They're learning to manage their world. Uh, and then um, there's a lot of instability today in emerging adulthood because of our global economy and other factors. As students may be 
in and out of junior college or college or training school or internships, apprenticeships. They may be in and out of relationships, move out from home, move back to home. So we see lots of instability. Um, and then they still seem to have a strong sense of hopefulness and optimism about future possibilities and opportunities. So. Okay. So you, you ended on hopefulness and your book is a, is a hopeful book. And in your book, you uh, talk about bright spot churches. Could you briefly tell us what bright spot churches are and about their five invitational practices? Oh, sure. I'd love to do that. Thank you. So um, to be in this, um, the book is based on my um, research study, which is small. And so I want to just start at the beginning with all transparency and say, these uh, the practices I will introduce to you from these really vibrant uh, churches among young adults um, are not prescriptive, but I do think they're highly suggestive. Um, the pattern was across all sizes, social locations, ethnicities, um, and I'll get into that later if need be. But just to be in the study, those churches had to have at least eight new faith commitments among young adults in the past 12 months but the young adult had to stick. And it wasn't necessarily a young adult that had grown up in that church. They were coming from a background of either being a church dropout for six months to a year to much longer. Most have been out for several years. Uh, so I call those duns in the book, right? Been there, done that with church and for whatever reason didn't work for me. And then um, what sociologists often call nuns. Uh, people who weren't raised in the church or don't have, don't identify as having any religious affiliation. They don't tend to practice worship. They don't go to any worship services at all in their life and probably never have unless it's just been a touch once or twice. So not only did those um, emerging adults have to have come to faith and Christ in those churches, they had to retain, which means in some way they became active in the life of that congregation. Um, they incorporated into the life of the church. They were still sticking. They were still coming. Um, and so those churches that were bright spot churches were really stand out in the area of just effectiveness among Gen Z and millennials um, and among nuns and nuns. Um, and they were um, drawing them to faith in Christ and helping to nurture those new commitments. So that's what a bright spot church is. And then I would love to introduce to you the five practices. But the, the first practice among these churches is that they initiate it. And what I mean by initiate is that people had relationships. Um, church members, church attendees, they had relationships with unchurched people, where they work, where they live, where they play and recreate. Um, and it was a little bit more than just having those relationships. They were close relationships. Um, they were in those relationships for life. And in those relationships, they were um, not afraid to talk about their faith in natural ways when it came up. They weren't pushy, but at the same time, they weren't reserved um, about communicating in ways that piqued curiosity. And also, I think, in ways that connected the dots for people. Oh, you know, our pastor just spoke about that a few weeks ago. You know, I'd love to pray for you about that. You know, we had a we had a message on that. I would love to share that link with you. I just think that um, what I heard might really connect to what to what you're thinking about or that decision you're making. So in some way, they just naturally talked about 
their way of being in following Jesus. So that was kind of that initiate practice. But then I want to walk on and say the next practice was invitation or inviting. And that functioned in two ways. At, at some point, they did connect an unchurched young adult with church. It might be through what I call a portal, like it could be through a soccer match, um, a camping trip. Uh, but for the most part, people were invited to the main worship services over the weekend, whether they were on Saturdays or Sunday. That was the main um, invitation that came. And so when people arrived, though, I, I just want to add this. They were warmly welcomed. There was an invitational culture that welcomed people into the church. And I fully describe that in, in the book. But I think um, just mentioning that to you, you know, sometimes we're afraid to, I've even heard pastors say, I don't know if I want to invite someone to my church, right? You know, we kind of got our one shot, right? Often, and we're uncomfortable or concerned about what might be said. Well, those churches had such an invitational culture that people weren't afraid to invite people because they knew when they arrived, they'd be warmly welcome. They'd hear some kind of message like, oh, you don't need to believe to belong here. Uh, you don't need to believe to come. Come check us out. Um, we're just so glad you're finding connection here. So they initiated relationships. They at some point began to invite people into church and into invitational culture. And then the next practice was to include. Um, here, people were uh, warmly included um, very enthusiastically into some kind of com community that was compelling, a compelling Christian community. Um, and I'm going to unpack that again in a few minutes, but it was a place where uh, young adults could raise their questions, their concerns, their criticisms, their narratives, and maybe stereotypes about church. They could um, have their questions answered. They could uh, observe how Christians interacted with each other. Several even talked about how um, maybe a married couple, a Christian couple that were married even talked to one another and, and interacted with each other in the group. They talked about how um, they actually learned enactments like in that small group or that group that gathered, there might be some kind of singing or worship. Uh, people were reading the scriptures and talking about them like they were relevant. They, um, uh, very interestingly, they, they read the scriptures themselves. They participated in prayer when people prayed. And prayer in that small group, uh, many pointed to as kind of very formative or maybe the first step in taking um, a step toward trusting Jesus or following him. Uh, it was a place where hospitality was practiced, um, service was done with each other, and sharing stories, um, as well as scripture. And it just provided a way for young adults to what I call kind of kick the tires. They could explore Christianity and say, I think I'm going to try this out in this small group and see if this actually fits me or not. And whether or not I want to, you know, this is like my sandbox, and whether or not I want to identify as a Christian as I'm out there kind of putting together my identity. This is a stop along the way. And this small group is really interesting. This community is really interesting. And I'm just going to participate and see what I think. I'm going to experiment. I'm going to experience it. Um, and often in those experiences, um, they actually encountered God, which was so cool in the small group. Okay, two more practices. One is involvement. And keep in mind, these weren't necessarily all sequential. It's not like someone 
was um, included in a small group and then they got invited to be involved or to serve or contribute in some way. And I'm talking about contributing before fully committing to faith in Christ. Sometimes a young adult was invited first to be involved. And that might look like, um, let's see, um, hey, if you uh, are enjoying this, why don't you come out Wednesday night? Um, I help out with our youth group and we could just use some leaders. You know, if you want to come play sports, a pickup basketball game, you know, we'll always be together. You're not going to be alone with anybody, but we sure could use you with our youth group. Why don't you come on out? Or uh, it might look like Saturday mornings. We're doing, um, we're, we're reaching out for those who are experiencing food insecurity. And we would love you to participate. If you have a heart to serve, you want to help, you maybe you've never even done it before, but you just like to come and help, join us. We'd love that. And then finally, uh, these young adults, these emerging adults, uh, were invested in. And again, it might not be sequential. Investment might come sooner. But certainly by the time they were in some kind of community group, could be a city group, uh, just could be a group that just gathers um, once a week for a game night or, oh, Frisbee. You know, it did. sometimes it was a Bible study, but other times it was just a gathering, whatever it looked like. I'm thinking of a young Canadian girl who was in this study, and for her, it was a, gr a group of um, students, uh, college and beyond, who got together for a board night. And that's why I'm a board game night. Board game night, excuse me. Big difference between board and board game night. And it was in that board game evening that she began to eat meat other um, followers of Jesus and became attracted. Uh, so that was kind of for her, her community. But eventually they were involved in some way. And then the church began to invest in the young adult at some point. They got on their radar. And if they were in small group, people were saying, hey, let's go out for coffee. Uh, if they were helping in some way, they were appreciated. They were given some training materials or curriculum or said, hey, we're going to all go to this conference or this retreat together. And um, suddenly the young adult is making all kinds of relationships, the people they're serving, whether it's a food line or a youth group, um, the people that are alongside of them as other leaders, they were never left alone as young adults to negotiate church or negotiate service of any kind. And then also in um, uh, the pastor, many times it then got on the pastor's radar and sometimes it might be the pastor first. And a pastor or pastoral leader or ministry leader would take the young adult out once every two or three weeks. They get together for coffee, a drink, a Coke, something, and begin to be mentored. It could be formally or informally. The last thing I'll mention before I pause is you'll notice the word immediately within the very center of that wheel. And that's because another pattern that emerged in this research is that the shorter the distance between practices, the more likely these young adults were to have uh, faith commitments that retained. So sometimes I was talking to a young adult that was three months to eight months attending that church. They're already in some kind of life group. They're already serving. They're using leader language. They may or may not even have been baptized yet. They may be co-leading a Bible study with someone. They may be an intern already, but that distance was short. So let me pause there. All right, that is so good. Beth, you talked about how emerging adults need communities that they feel they belong to. And I remember, uh, 
I was in an English class somewhere where people mentioned that in English literature, you either have stories about people trying to run away from a suffocating ad identity or then it swings to the other end of the spectrum and you have people desperately trying to find an identity. And it seems that we're kind of in the latter phase now. Why don't emerging adults feel like they belong? Hmm. Such a good question. And I would I can't answer all of that in a short time, but I'd like to mention some things that I think contribute to it. First of all, emerging adulthood is much different than young adulthood, perhaps 40, 50 years ago, or even 30. Um, the economy is so different. It is so hard to land a good job and have job security, be able to rent a home, let alone home ownership. I spent the weekend with five young adults between 32 and 28 who are renting a home together, three bedroom ranch. It's just life is so different depending on the community, of course, but in urban areas, at least in the US, and you'll have to contextualize everything I say to your situation. And of course, across Canada, right? It's varied. So um, I, I wanna be cautious. So please think about, that's a great question for all of you to be answering. But what we see in the research is uh, where identity exploration, the phase of identity exploration, um, generally took place in high school, and then it bumped into college for college attenders. There's probably only 40% of US citizens who go to college. So, uh, so that's not the majority by any means. Um, but 30 years ago, people landed, let's just say they got married at age, at least in the States, the average age for women was age 20 and for men was 22. Today, men are getting married at age 29 and women at 27. So part of that is they, they those traditional markers of having a good job, finishing my education. Many people who do get education find out one education isn't enough. They're getting a master's or then they're going on and getting training in coding school, you know, or whatever it is before they can get that job. Um, and I could give you several stories out of the out of my own research where that was very true. And I give some of those stories in the book as well. Or people land jobs they just cannot stand. So young adults also don't keep jobs as long for several reasons. And it's hard to find a job when boomers aren't retiring. And there are just so many factors to what's happening. So it's very, very different than what it looked like for us. And we can make assumptions about them like they're lazy or why don't they get a job? you're not going to find any kind of that bashing in my book because I really admire these young adults so much. They are trying to find a place in our world and to contribute significantly. They have aspirations towards morality, towards contributing and giving back to the world and making it a better place, but they're having difficulty reaching those aspirations and landing. Well, let me pick up on uh, something you, you talked about morality and, and in your book, you, you write that you believe that young adults are looking for people to help them reach their moral aspirations, which is really interesting because in other contexts, we've heard that morality and judgmentalism, they get put together, but there's something different going on here. What, what is different in, in this, this emphasis on reaching their own moral aspirations? Mm -hmm. This is something in this research studies, not just this one that I've done, that I've seen and read and heard repeatedly. And if we think about it, if we even think about some of the shows our young adults watch, there's a really strong emphasis on mentoring, on when I reach my goal, what I'm going to do. 
Now, when we look at maybe 18 to 23 year olds, they're just still trying to just, just to land somewhere, right? They're, they're, it's an early young adulthood. And they, many do have aspirations to contribute, but most of them are just at a place of just trying to manage my own life now. But as they're growing older, they're looking for places to give, but they just don't always know how to connect to those places. Um, and they're suspicious of some of the institutions and advertisements about, um, you know, they want to know, is it good? But I think what we can miss as Christians is that young adults, even if they are not believers, have a moral compass. It may not look like ours. And for them, the church does not always look ethical or moral. Mm-hmm. Now, I had stories of young adults. Here's one of Nathan who had never been to church because he didn't want to be contaminated by that church. Wow. His mother in high school had been a church attender and she became pregnant. And her perception was the church shunned her. Now, what is Nathan's narrative about church? Church is not a place for me or my mother, and it is judgmental. So that morality doesn't maybe match exactly ours, and we may feel misunderstood, but uh, many young adults have felt abandoned or disillusioned by church and by church's morals and ethics. You, you talked about uh, the importance of enactments and in chapter 10, especially you talk about how young adults need to belong and behave before they believe and commit. And we hear this in many different uh, Christian circles now that you belong, uh, behave and believe instead of believe, behave and belong. And it kind of turns our ministry models inside out. And I was wondering if you could talk about why this is important and what has changed in the, the culture? Because I'm making the assumption that there was a time when the old ways worked. And I'm trying to understand why the old ways don't work now. Sure. So such a helpful question, Rick. You know, so I have InterVarsity Christian Fellowship background, just so uh, you're aware. And I first observed this maybe 15 years ago in InterVarsity. Uh, and so then I did some research projects to see if it tested out in more than one campus, right? And so I was researching young adults up in Duluth and researching them at Kansas University, UChicago, um, UCSD, trying to find out, are are you saying you're co-leading a Bible study and you're not a Christian? (laughs) Or you weren't a Christian yet? Because that's what I was hearing. And I knew, you know, being on staff, I also knew that we were really going after students and, and raising them up and putting them in leadership positions side by side with a mature Christian as assistant leaders, as co-leaders. And often they were coming to faith in that inductive Bible study, in that manuscript study. Um, So I had not seen the church do anything like this, but yet doesn't it make sense? We We are entrusting our own children when they're in middle school and high school and beyond, and we're not quite sure they have fully made faith commitments but we're giving them service opportunities in the church. I mean, I hope we're asking our high schoolers, right, to be serving our younger students, our middle schoolers serving our elementary. And we're not leaving them alone to do that. They're, they're not overseeing people's spiritual growth, but we're giving them opportunities to lead. Um, and so that's what I was observing. And I had seen so much writing 
on this idea of um, belonging before believing, and I completely embrace that. But what I thought I saw the difference was, is these young adults were saying, I serve, I contribute, I lead, I'm growing. Um, and I would say, okay, tell me about that service. Oh, I'm um, teaching. Uh, so here's, here's Brooke, and she was a bartender, and she started coming to church in August. And uh, by um, October, she was invited onto the church's 2020 vision team, serving with her pastor and others. By January, she was co-leading a Bible study for young adult women her own age. Bartending, bartending in August with no personal faith that, that she was aware of. And sometime along here, she is transforming in her journey, which as I, I'm a conversionist, but I really do believe it's a journey today more often than that point in time. At some point, people transform from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Absolutely. But we don't always know exactly when that is. And so sometime on her journey towards trusting and following Christ, she is already serving. She gets baptized later, like February or March. So, you know, at that point, and even hearing me, I wasn't saying, oh, this is right. It's just, this is what I'm observing. Right. When you get to my last chapter is where I engage the reader to say, now I want you to be the um, armchair theologian. Now we've observed what's happening here. Why is it happening? You know, how is it happening? What's contributing to it? And now we want to put on our biblical theological lenses and ask, should it be happening? Is there anywhere in the scriptures that this uh, doesn't set right? Uh, and if we come to the place where we say we're not really seeing anything that's uh, moral, that's um, extra biblical, uh, there seems to be a movement of the spirit here. You know, not, there's no flags coming up except, you know, don't let that person lead alone and don't let them handle God's word alone, right, before they're too young. Um, so, so please hear all that. It's a little bit of risky behavior in the sense that the church is taking a big risk on young adults who may fail morally. And the young adult is taking a huge risk because they think that the church often is not moral. You are right-winged politically. You do not care about um, the LBGTQ community of homophobia. You just want everybody saved. If you want to talk about it your way and only your way, and you're just not willing to shift. So, so they think we're not moral. So there's a risk taking on both parts. Um, and then if we can, if we do come to the conclusion and you have to do this in your own context that I think this is biblical. Then I would say, is there anything here that's transferable in our context that God would leave us, lead us to implement? You have this beautiful idea of what you call co-communicating. What is this and why is this important for churches and for young adults? What do you mean by co-communicating? I do think this is one of those timeless um, principles of outreach um, that many people have used so well. And that is when you are able to communicate to both Christians and those who have not made faith commitments yet uh, in a way that communicates clearly, um, that's not confusing, that is not using jargon people are uncomfortable with or don't even understand. Um, and I, I'm going to just give you an example, what, because this is also from all my pastor interviews. The book is, you know, interviews from young adults who came to faith in Christ and from their lead pastors. Okay. So it's very interesting to hear their stories, how they fit together. So um, 
let's say this is my Bible. But anyway, I'm the pastor and it's Sunday morning and it's still great to see everyone here today. And, you know, you may be asking why we are going to look at this ancient book. I mean, it's millennium. It's old. But it's because people over the last 2000 years have found hope here and comfort, solace and wisdom. And so we're going to look at it again today for just those reasons. That's so good. So notice I didn't say we're going to study it. I didn't say much about it being the Bible or authoritative yet. I'm building credibility for the Bible slowly. Thank you for listening. Check out more podcasts and subscribe to Faith Today magazine for free at faithtoday.ca. This podcast is produced by the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada. If you enjoyed it, please rate or share it.